All right, so we are on week five of global Christian history. And this week we're doing the history of Christianity in sub-Saharan Africa. So one of the mistakes we make when we think I've just, I'm speaking generally here, so don't pin me down. But generally, when we think of the continent of Africa, one of the mistakes I think that you quite often hear people make is is that uh, they think of the entire continent and the history of that continent as one whole, and that's crazy, okay? That would be the equivalent of doing the same thing in North America. We got Canada, we got the United States, we got Mexico and all the Latin American countries. They all have very different histories, very different ways that Christianity spread and was hindered and in every one of those countries. So it's the same for the history of Christianity in Africa as well. So we shouldn't think of it as one large country because it's not that at all. It's a huge landmass with hundreds and hundreds of millions of people with very different histories depending on which side or wherever you want to say geographically where you're located. So we have to keep that in mind when we think about that, okay? So in Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26, this is what the Bible says. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So this man, he, this eunuch, he, had, he was in Jerusalem during the time of Pentecost, and he's converted. You know, quite often when we get, or whenever we baptize people, we quote this this passage of scripture, we talk about Acts 8 and the Ethiopian eunuch. And so I'm going to ask a very simple question. This man gets baptized, the, the Bible tells us, but it doesn't tell us what happens with him specifically next. So logic would state that he went where after he was baptized? Ethiopia. He went to Ethiopia. He went home, right? as a converted man, as a believer, right? So we do know from history that, so we don't know exactly where he went, but common sense would tell us that he went home. But we do know that one of the oldest Christian communities on the continent of Africa is in Ethiopia, right? Now, this is important, right? For one reason in particular, so prior to my conversion, one of the re- my, my grandfather and my family, they all were believers and grew up Christian. I'm from Arkansas. Everybody, you know, everybody in Arkansas is a Christian. You know. Yeah, you know what I mean. And so one of the reasons I resisted um, Christianity was because I had always heard that Christianity was a white man's religion, right? Which is simply just not, I don't even have to open a Bible to prove that point is not true. Okay, historically, the Christian faith did not start in Europe. 
It's not a European, uh, uh, um, a religion that's indigenous to Europe. But I think what one of the failures that the church has done has failed to speak about history enough. You know, just how the gospel has spread historically throughout the world. And we we tend to speak quite often about um, spiritual things disconnected from history. I think that's a mistake. Our faith is rooted and grounded in history, right? That's Paul's entire argument in 1 Corinthians 15. His entire argument for the resurrection is rooted and grounded in the historical reality of the resurrection, not necessarily the spiritual aspect of it, but more so the historical aspect of it. If Jesus Christ is not historically and physically out of the grave, then your faith is in vain. That's his entire argument. And as proof, he says to go talk to the witnesses, right? So we have a faith that is rooted and grounded in history. So that it becomes imperative for us to some degree to understand Christian history, right? So I think we don't do a good enough job of dealing with this subject or talking about this subject, right? And so it's, a, it's to our detriment and to the detriment of the people that we witness to, right? So one of the reasons we pray is what? We believe God can actually act in the world, right? Otherwise, why would you pray? So you need to believe and understand how God acts in the world. So that's why I believe, you know, Christian history is important, how these things have transpired, all right? So anyways, on to Christian history in sub-Saharan Africa. So historian Mark Knoll recently highlighted the changes in um, Christian adherence around the entire globe. In Africa, the numbers are telling. So in 1900, there were known to be somewhere around 8.8 to 9 million Christian adherents. And by 2008, the number had jumped to over 425 million. All right, so that's an increase of almost 50%. Right, and that was in 2008. So almost 50% of the population is known to adhere to Christianity. So what this reflects is a significant shift in the population of the center of Christianity. So Christianity is no longer, um, the population center of Christianity is no longer North America and Europe. It's now in the South. Okay, It's South America and Africa just by sheer numbers, there are more Christians in those continents than there are in North America and Europe, right? And that's important because you, like, if you watch the news and you see things where you start to see certain denominations, they tend to veer off course and go liberal in some of their understandings about sexuality and different things like that. It has actually been a lot of the African bishops who have been holding the line to stay as closely as possible to what the Bible says about sexuality and different things like that. So they actually, so the center of the Christian world is moving slowly, ever so slowly to the South. That makes sense to you, right? So today what I wanna do is give us a 30,000 foot view of Christianity in Africa. So time is not going to permit us to go too deeply because it's such a huge continent, so many different variables. So we're going to do some, it's going to be very, very broad. So, <clears throat> and then at the end, 
we'll talk about how we can pray for local churches there and what we can do to help. Yes. Sure. So I was wondering, like, is that is that biblical for a country or a society to do that? Which part? The declaring themselves a Christian nation. Is it biblical? Yes. I don't think it's unbiblical. I mean, like, so, <clears throat> so here, so the way since Christ's ad, first advent, the nation, so the na- oh, let me go back a little bit. The nation of Israel was a geopolitical nation. Okay, that's not the church, right? That, that way of God moving in the world was a shadow of the things that was to come in the church. So the church is not bound by any particular geographic area or any particular one group of people, right? So in that way, no. However, if the people of that nation are believers, then absolutely they should live according to the word of God. Right now, what that's going to look like in place to place is obviously going to look very different. No, is it necessarily wrong? No. Hopefully, that answered your question. All right. So, um, <clears throat> so again, like I said, like I said earlier, when you think about this subject, you have to think this continent is huge, and the histories of the different countries are very diverse. So what was going on in Northern Africa may be very, very different than what was going on in the countries in Southern Africa. So we shouldn't, you should not be thinking of this as one big conglomerate. That's, that's a terrible way to think about it. All right. So we're going to start with um, the ancient period, Roman, North Africa, the Copts, Ethiopia, and Nubia. Okay. So the story begins in the first century. Some of the earliest Christian believers were part of the Roman Empire in North Africa. In fact, Christianity's intellectual center at the time was northern Africa, especially in the city of Alexandria. Theologians like Tertullian, Cyprian, Athanasius, Augustine, and Origen resided in northern Africa. These men in these churches were leading thinkers and leaders on the matters of Christian doctrine, particularly on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And there are numerous accounts of Christians dealing with persecution as well in this area. So in Egypt and in Ethiopia, from the third century even until today, there has been a group of churches that have existed through much change in the region. So as the, that region has been changing country to country, um, there have been groups of Christian churches that have existed in, across all of that turmoil in terms of what was going on politically. And there have been churches that has outlasted all of that since before the third century, okay? Some of these churches held to a doctrine that believed that Christ only has one nature instead of two natures, which seems like a small matter, but when you combine the divine and the human natures of Jesus, 
you typically tend to lose the fact that he has a human nature. And so for some churches there, their Jesus only appears to be human. And it's not clear how they can emphasize or I'm not I'm not sure how if you believe that Christ was um, more deity than he was man, that he's not truly man and truly God in one person. I don't know how you can preach honestly that he can empathize with us in every way. So what our salvation demands that we have a savior who is both truly man and truly God. And to diminish one of those natures is to do damage to the gospel and to what we believe for our salvation. So nevertheless, the uh, uh, Council of Chalcedon in uh, 451 AD confessed that one, they confessed one person of Christ, two natures. So those who hold to a one nature view of Jesus, they would still consider themselves to be Christian, right? Although we would make a distinction at that point. And many of uh, the the Eastern Orthodox Church and the rest of Western Christianity would say that Christ has to be one person, two natures, divine, of the same substance uh, as the Father, and of the same substance as humans, men, okay? That's required. And that these two uh, natures of Christ are unconfused, unchangeable, indivisible, and inseparable. But nevertheless, those who, there are many, many people in this part of Africa who consider themselves to be of the Christian faith ever since the first century, right? So then we're going to jump forward to 610, around 16 AD, there was a traitor, not traitor, trader, T-R-A-D-E-R, trader. Okay, from Mecca, whose name is Muhammad, he felt he was called to deliver a message from God. He preached a very strict the, uh, monotheism. This is what we know as Islam, right? Um, Muhammad gathered a group of followers that would explode over the next 50 years across um, northern Africa. And the e- so the Ethiopian church and Islam would clash for many, many years, and Islam would shape a large portion of that part of the continent even today. So it's important to mention these churches because they represent some of the earliest Christian churches. And I know I'm like glancing over them, but I'm only doing this because it's a lot of information I got to get through and I only got a few minutes. So, And now I, I, I know we have a couple sisters in the church from, you're from Ethiopia, right? Mamla and then I, and Bonnie's from Uganda, so if I say something wrong, just correct me, please. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um. So, there's a really good book I would recommend. It's called The Early Church by uh, Henry Chadwick. I believe I put that on your uh, handout. Did I not put it on the handout? It should be on the handout. It's called The Early Church by Christy by Henry Chadwick. It's a really good resource about this particular region and time period. All right. So that takes us to the next um, point, European exploration. That's from the 15th century to the 19th century. So I know it's going to seem odd to skip over so many years, 
but we really don't know of of much documented Christian expansion in Africa until this this time period. Now that doesn't mean it wasn't happening. It just means that I couldn't find enough information or enough about it for you in this time period that I've been given it to share it with you. So I don't want to misspeak here, right? So um, the Renaissance saw Western Europe, they began to take an interest in the world beyond Europe, right? And so this interest would lead them into colonialism, and it, which would eventually lead to the expansion of Christianity beyond its traditional borders, right? So as we have seen already, churches, like in the past weeks, we saw churches in China and in other parts of the world and in Asia. But now this would be when Europe, a European form or style of Christianity was being exported from Europe and transplanted into different countries, right? So this happened in two ways. Missionaries were sent out and sought to convert people that they found, and colonists, when they would go and settle into these different places, they would bring their religion with them. So that second way is more incidental. The first way is more intentional. So the Portuguese were leaders in expansion into northern Africa. I mean, geographically, it just makes sense. Spain and Portugal are extremely close, like, geographically to northern Africa. So they would try to expand into northern Africa, they, and they had many battles with Muslims in northern Africa for many years. And, in an F, and their, their, whole, their goal was to make a pathway from Europe to India. And the Portuguese, they started to explore the African coast. And in somewhere around 14, late 1490s, uh, Portuguese explorers started to build forts and trading posts and settlements along the northern African coastline. And in for, and around 1482, I'm sorry, yeah, 1490, um, a fort was built in what is today known as Ghana, the nation of Ghana, right? So in, in there, so Catholic missionaries arrived there and began to preach to the people of Ghana and most of the, but the, so the issue here is, is that most of the missionaries spoke very little of the local languages and didn't explain very much about the faith and Christianity, and they didn't have the Bible in their own language. So they would make converts, but very little depth or anything taught about the Christian faith. So for the next century or so, predominantly Roman Catholic missionaries were across, being sent out across northern Africa. So from the Gold Coast, you got a map on the, on the third page of your handout if you want to, if you care about any of these uh, regions I'm mentioning. So um, <coughs> along the uh, Gold Coast to Congo or even on to West Africa, Africans started to adopt what they were receiving from Roman Catholic priests, right? But they often saw it as a supplement to their indigenous and traditional religions. And with this, you begin to see one of the features of, um, now this isn't exclusive to African um, religion because I don't know if you remember um, the um, missionary that we sent out from our church. I'm not saying his name for 
reasons that I shouldn't. <laughs> he talked a lot about syncretism. I don't know if you remember when he was doing his presentations on um, missionary work where uh, anytime you would try to uh, go into different foreign nations and you take the Christianity with you, just by virtue of us being humans, we try to syncretize that into the things that we held or believed prior to being introduced to Christianity. Now, sometimes that's not bad, depending on like if it's cultural things, it can become a huge problem doctrinally. That makes sense to you? When you start to mesh idolatry in with Christianity, then you start to have a big problem. That makes sense to you? Okay. So um, we'll touch, touch on this a little bit more later. Um, so they started, sometimes blending those beliefs can be contradictory, right? So through the varied locations, um, the early Catholic effort was pretty successful. Some French, uh, I'm sorry, some Portuguese missionaries would often, so the way, their, their way of spreading the gospel there, I'm using my air quotes, would be to um, find a king or a local chief, persuade him to be baptized, and then what he would order all of his people to be baptized. Now, we talked about this, I believe it was last week, in Russia, how around the uh, Black Sea area in the Ukraine where the czar or the king of Ukraine became Christian, came home, the kingdom of Kiev got all of his people together and was like, we're Christian now, get baptized. And we talked about how disastrous that was to the faith there and those people. So this was a kind of similar situation that was going on here among the uh, Roman Catholic effort. So which would make sense for them to do that because of what they believe about infant baptism and how you enter into the church is simply by baptism. So we want to fill the church up. We just start baptizing people, right? Nevertheless, I digress, right? Um, so <clears throat> vast numbers of people were baptized, and by the late 17th century, Roman Catholic priests baptized somewhere around 50,000 people. And in Congo, by 1543, there were roughly 2 million Roman Catholics in the nation of Con Congo, by 1543, that's about half of the population at the time. So nevertheless, nothing became deeply established and everything relied on European and Roman Catholic priests in that particular part of the country or the continent, I should say. And then we saw a reversible decline in Roman Catholicism spreading around that area, especially during the time when the slave trade started. So we'll get into all of that. So the international slave trade would decimate the economy and the people of Congo and many other people and other groups in Africa. Roughly about 4,000 people were being stolen from Congo every year as a result of the slave trade. And the slave trade quickly became central to the economies and the increasing power of many European nations, all right? So then we have the Protestant arrival, the Protestant arrival. So the first non, this is page two if you hand out if you're following along. So the first non-Catholics to arrive 
in that area, the northern African area, were um, the Dutch. <clears throat> now, their aim, <clears throat> their aim wasn't missionary work, but it was trade. So <clears throat> they, excuse me. <clears throat> I'm sorry, this wasn't northern Africa. This was southern, southern Africa. So you got the Portuguese in northern Africa, and then you got the Dutch who go to southern Africa, what we know as the nation of South Africa, and they begin to settle Cape Town, South Africa. So by the 18th century, the Protestant powers, which would have been the British and the Danish as well, had set up forts along um, this coastline. These settlements were primarily for trade, and, but by the uh, latter half of the 18th century saw the first Protestant missions into Africa, no, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. So they were at first tentative, in the, the, but the first Anglican missionary in Africa was a man named Thomas Thompson, sent by the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in 1751 to Cape Coast Castle, which is Ghana, which is Ghana, right? So uh, this missionary impulse from the, uh, European churches, for the most part, were organized not necessarily by the denominations themselves, but by what they call societies. So it would be these societies are expressly found for the purposes of missionary work. And there was an enormous number of these societies set up, mostly set up and run by lay people. So this wasn't the heads of the denominations for the most part setting up these societies. It would be, say for example, if Andrew decided, you know, I think that the gospel should be spread among the people of Ghana. He would start a society, start recruiting people, raising funds. What we would probably call like a parachurch ministry nowadays, that would be the equivalent of a missionary society. Make sense to you? So they, he would, these um, efforts were run by lay people, most often relatively of low social status. And one of the first Baptist missionary societies was founded in 1792 by a man named William Carey. You might be familiar with that name, William Carey. Uh, more important was the London Missionary Society, and this was a non-denominational group founded in 1795, right? They uh, spurned, they, okay, so these groups typically were spurned by larger denominations like the Church of England because of the fact that they were not working specifically together with the denominations, they were doing this independent of the denominations. That makes sense to you? That's gonna, make, that's gonna come into play later. So at least to begin with, these societies had nothing to do with um, imperialism. Missionaries were sent to the Americas as well as uh, Africa with the simple aim of preaching the gospel. And indeed, the evangelical nature of these societies made them suspicious to the denominational heads, right? So you have to remember, we live in a very different climate um, it, where, where we are with the, the relationship between the church and the government is very different than it would have been at that time. So we don't have a national church, praise the Lord, right? But there are very many nations that did. If I, correct me if I'm wrong, but 
is is it not true that the the queen or the the queen of England is the head of the church in the, the not, anymore. not anymore? It used to be that though, correct? Okay, so Okay, so so the point is that there's very much interaction with the government and the church that we're not familiar with here in the United States, right? Like we have to beg people to believe Romans 13, <laughs> right? It's a very different situation um, at this time. So when these societies would start, they would do these uh, separate and apart, and it brought some suspicion from the uh, denomination. So <clears throat> at least to begin with, like I say, that the, the motives were pure. They were trying to spread the gospel. And um, they were, these uh, initial movements, these societies were countercultural in a sense to what was going on with the tradesmen and the, and the other um, impulses of imperialism. So they weren't there necessarily to see uh, European culture spread and to earn money. They were there. Uh, we just want the gospel to spread among these people initially. Okay. Um, and so for that, that's important because one of the leaders in the um, Christian Missionary Society was a, or I'm sorry, the Church Missionary Society was a man named Henry Veen, and he believed that the priority of missionaries was to train local clergy to run churches themselves and that the churches should not be carbon copies of European churches. They should have a distinctive local flair while holding on to the truths of the gospel, right? So that's going to change later, but we'll get into that. So this idea was helped by the important work, the important missionary work to Africa by other Africans, okay? Not necessarily just Europeans. So Protestant Christianity had become widespread among, okay, so let me just backtrack a little bit. So uh, remember, history is very complex, right? So there's things happening all over the globe at the same time. So so they, they interplay with one another. So try not to silo your brain into one situation. So while this is happening in um, different parts of Africa, the slave trade is going on in the Americas, right? And so many former slaves from the U.S. and Canada would had its impulse to move back to Africa, Okay. You, you heard of Sierra Leone, a place called Sierra Leone? Okay, so um, there were very many former slaves in the Americas that were Protestant, had this impulse to go back to C Sierra Leone, and one of the first was a man named Jacobus, I'm sorry, Jacobus uh, Kayapatan. He was a former slave. He was ordained in Holland, and he moves back to Ghana on behalf of the Dutch Reformed Church. He preached. He's from a people called a Fonte. Am I saying this right? Fonte? Do you know this? No? Okay. <laughs> All right. That's what I'm going with, Fonte. And 
he translated the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and a Reformed Catechism into this language. Uh, there was another man named Philip Quake in Cape Coast. He was trained in England and became a chaplain. And he stayed in this community at Cape Coast until his death in 1816. And he was the first African to be ordained in the uh, Church of England. Now, these efforts by these African missionaries were aided by a large number of freed slaves from Canada, the United States, and parts of South America, right? And so many of these freed slaves and their descendants, they started coming back to Sierra Leone. And so in 1792, there was 15 ships full of former slaves from all over the Americas who landed in a place called Freetown, Sierra Leone. So most of these people were Christians, and there was two particular men who landed there. It was a preacher named David Ash, Moses Wilkerson. I'm sorry, Wilkinson were among them. And so as, it's a, as the story goes, history tells us that as they marched off the ship, these men and a group of them were clutching their Bibles, singing a hymn, and the words of the hymn go, wake and sing the songs of Moses and the Lamb is the name of the hymn. Because for many of these people, they regarded this return to Africa as somewhat of a new exodus. That's the way they described it, a new exodus back to the promised land. So as this suggests, Christianity played a central role in the life of this country, Sierra Leone. And it wasn't long after that they arrived there that these people, these settlers, began to spread the gospel to other people around them. So in um, 1807, 1807, Britain passes the Slave Trade Act. You know what this is, the Slave Trade Act? Does anybody not know what the Slave Trade Act is? Everybody knows, but nobody knows? <laughs> so the Slave Trade Act is the act of the, the Britain abolished the slave trade. So no longer could you take slaves from Africa and put them on a boat and take them across the Atlantic, right? So they ended that trade, right? So the government was trying to enforce this trade by what they would do is police the Western African coast. And when they would capture ships, they would seize any illegal cargo of slaves. And most often they would take them to Sierra Leone. So like say, if somebody was taken from Nigeria and they were found by um, the British government, they wouldn't take them back to Nigeria, they'd take them to Sierra Leone. Make sense to you? All right, so they were taken to Sierra Leone, the pop so then what happens around this, so because of this, the population of Sierra Leone starts to swell and many of the people who were sent to Sierra Leone are reported to have been convinced by their experiences that they were abandoned by the gods of their old religion and had to some degree been receptive about hearing about the God of Scripture preached to them by the people who were in already in Sierra Leone. So the capital of Sierra Leone is Freetown. Um, it had a considerable influence on the uh, western coast of Africa at the time. So many people that were returning from slavery would come to Freetown and for a time. Um, so, so there were people who would 
be born in the Americas, right? Somehow or another became free. Go to Sierra Leone, be trained as missionaries, and go back. So there are stories of people who go back in various different ways as missionaries back to South America, the United States, the Caribbean. Some go back as slaves themselves, sell themselves, so to speak, into slavery with the express purpose of being missionaries to wherever they were going. That makes sense to you? So, um, you see this movement going, like I said, this is very, very broad, so I'm not, can't really drill down on things. So, uh, similar to Sierra Leone is a place called Liberia to the southeast. This coastline was settled by, also settled by former slaves to some degree, particularly in the 1830s and 40s, and the country achieved its independence in 1847. And this is where I, I'm being told here um, that the, the name Liberia, was, that's where the name came from because of its freedom that they received. They became independent much earlier than most other African nations, right? Am I understanding this correctly? All right. So I'm, I'm sorry, I keep asking y'all this because... <laughs> So I, I, before you got here, Ms. Bonnie, I told him that you and Bomlock were, uh, were from Africa, so if I say something wrong, you was going to check me. All right? No. <laughs> All right. All right. Oh. Yes, that's what – yeah, so – the question she asked is, wasn't Liberia established the same way Sierra Leone was, right, to settle freed American slaves? The answer to that question is yes. So um, that's the reason for the name Liberia. That's where it comes from. So uh, missions here was a serious concern in this nation of Liberia as it was in Sierra Leone, but it was primarily done by the Anglicans. So it was prim primarily the Anglicans who were responsible for this. So a succession of bishops established a large number of um, mission centers in this area of Liberia, and it had much success, although they did not reach a wide of area as Sierra Leone did. So the missionary work that Liberia did was mostly local around them, but the missionary work in Sierra Leone extended beyond Sierra Leone. They would send missionaries in back to the places that they came from originally. That makes sense to you, All right? So at the same time this is going on, there's the nation of Cameroon, um, where there was a thriving Jamaican Baptist uh, missionary mission there, overseen by an English Baptist named Alfred Saker. And one of his protégés was a man named Joseph Merrick. He was a, a brilliant linguist, history tells us, who translated part of the New Testament into the Isubu language. And Joseph Merrick, he was also a printer by trade, so he was able to print these translations into the Isubu language, which gave a huge boost to the um, Christian mission work and the spread of literacy in that area. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago. So if I do a, go to an area uh, to do missionary work, and we translate the Bible into this language, 
it does us no good if the people can't read. Right? So, by necessity, we have to make what? Schools. Right? So we have to, and it's a shame that we have allowed the educational system to be hijacked. Right? Because history tells us that prim the primary reason why literacy starts to explode in different places is so that the Bible can be read. Right? So my wife, she homeschools our children, and one of the things that I constantly have to remind my children of is, is that we're educating you primarily so that you can know Jesus. Right? I need you to read so that you can read the Word of God. I need you to appreciate history so that you can appreciate what God has done in history to save his church. Right? And I need you to learn poetry and appreciate poetry so that you can read the Psalms and that you can know about the religious experiences of your forefathers in the faith and how that impacted the way that they served the Lord. Right? And sec secondarily, we do these things so that you can make a living. That makes sense to you? Right? That's a, that's a, that's a byproduct of the, uh, the point of education. Right? All things were made for the glory of God. All things, including education, literacy, and all of those other things. So our first and five primary goal should be, I want these babies to read so they can read about the Savior. Amen? Yes, sir. There's a, uh, there's a book by a historian. Uh, his name is Tom Holland called Dominion. Okay. Right. Right. So <clears throat> much of what we do, um, even in business, right, when you write a business letter and you address it to a particular person, right, that's that follows the pattern of the epistles in the in the New Testament. Right. So much of what we do in our lives, just without even thinking about it, it has been influenced by the history of missionary work, the Bible and whatnot. So, nevertheless, this man's work, these people's work here led to schools being built, the spread of literacy in that area, so these things went hand in hand. And so one of the most significant figures of this area, era, era was a man named Samuel Aije Crowther. He was born in what is now Nigeria in 1806. Crowther was of the Yoruba people, and they are from a place called uh, Benin. He was enslaved, and then he was rescued. He was, he was, so he was enslaved. He was from Nigeria. He was enslaved. He was freed, and then he was sent to Sierra Leone. So then he became educated at one of the schools there, a place called Faru Bay College, ordained by the Church of England, where, if you remember the name I mentioned earlier, Henry Venn was his mentor, right? So remember, Henry Venn, his philosophy was you train people from the area to, to run churches and you don't impose your cultural um, predilections onto these people, right? That makes sense to you? So then this man, what he does is in 1845, he returns back to 
his birthplace, right, as a missionary. And it's reported that he preached to very large crowds there, opened several schools, and his effort was joined by more than 2,000 other people in a similar situation who were formerly slaves, had come back to Sierra Leone, and they all eventually migrated to the place that um, Crowther was from, Benin. And his effort there, he, went, he goes back in um, 1845 ha- after having been freed. And in 16, by 1864, he was made a bishop of Africa in the Church of England, right? So his work there was, was tremendous, which takes us to the, um, so we're, if you're following along on a handout, we're on the modern era, the modern era, right? So, um, I'm sorry, no, not quite. I apologize. So this is, so this is, we're still talking about um, the missionary work of Protestants from Europe, right? So the second part of this, so remember the first part of this movement was primarily Roman Catholic and Anglican and with some very different things going on with the United States and people coming in from Liberia, Sierra Leone. And then you have this second phase of European mission movement, which started in the latter half of the 19th century. So this, it it really explodes here, um, the uh, European mission into more interior parts of the continent, right? So it's a man named Robert Mufat. He was a Scottish missionary Together, he, with his wife, they were sent by the London Missionary Society to a place called Karuman. Uh, it was in, it's the interior of what is now the nation of South Africa. They got sent in 1821. Johann Kampf was a German sent by the uh, Christian Missionary Society to the eastern side of the continent. He spent very many years in Ethiopia. Um, hoping to use it as a base for further missionary work, but he was eventually expelled out of Ethiopia in 1844. He left there, goes to Zanzibar, and then he bases his work out of Zanzibar into uh, Kenya, to the nation of Kenya, and he worked for very many years to translate the New Testament into the language of Swahili. So often missionary work at this time is combined together with European expansion, right, for economic reasons. So the famous Scotman David Livingston, he treks across Africa, and as he's going across, he's writing in his journal, he sends his journal back to Europe, and and parts of his journal is uh, published, and he described in his journal that the continent of Africa was ripe for exploration where commerce and Christianity could be imported into different areas together. Now, that's terrible. No Christian missionary should be thinking like that, right? No Christian missionary should be thinking, I can go to this group of people to spread the gospel and make money. That's from the pit. That's wicked evil, right? Nevertheless, that's what was going on. This is, this is where around this time is where we begin to see what we think of as modern colonialism where European missionaries would seek to impose, they would move from this old standard from men like that I mentioned o- earlier, like Philip Kwake and, and Carothers and Dean to this new 
um, period of time where they would impose European customs and culture onto the people that they were spreading the gospel to. So in 1855, we see um, the Congress of Berlin. Anybody know what this is, Congress of Berlin? No? Man, history classes are terrible now. (laughs) All right, Congress of Berlin is when a bunch of European nations got together and decided how we're going to split up Africa. So they just agreed, a bunch of European nations agreed, okay, the Dutch, you're going to have this side, go, go get them. You're, um, British, you can have this portion, but none of the African nations were actually involved in any of this, right? It was just, they just um, artificially divided the continent among themselves and ignoring the people, the geography, and the culture, right? And so when, they, when the mission, the whole, the goal was to conquer that area and impose European values, culture, and belief on the, on the people, okay? And that would include Christianity. So in 18, oh, I'm sorry, in 1914, so that takes us to the modern era. That takes us to the modern era. So in 1914, the eastern side of the continent was rocked by European fi- Europeans fighting one another because by this time we're getting closer and closer to World War I. Germans versus the French versus the British. And in the first part of the 20th century, uh, so while all this is going on, uh, Roman Catholicism is also exploding across sub-Saharan Africa. And so the Protestant church effort didn't receive a lot of help in this at this time, even though there were, they were less in number than the Roman Catholics. Nevertheless, their numbers were remarkable given what was going on at the time. So we're told that by 1960, there were 2 million Baptists in Kenya. And much of the success was through the efforts that were these previous Bible schools that I talked about earlier had set up. So in the 20th century, however, we start to witness the growth of Pentecostalism in, Ameri- in Africa and so-called uh, prophetic churches. These uh, prophets helped to swell the ranks of various churches along, across the continent, but also represented a new and highly African um, movement in Christianity. So one of the terrible things that the United States has done is to export the prosperity gospel to other nations, right? It's absolutely horrible and ridiculous. That is completely in our lap, okay? The, the prosperity gospel can only work in a place that's prosperous, right? No, no, no. That the prosperity gospel would have never began in a place where it was not among a prosperous people. Right? What's that? Sure, but we started it. We exported that vile foolishness. That's that's our that's in our lap. Okay? And so this starts to spread uh, along Africa. So there's a man named Prophet Harris from Liberia. He was brought up Methodist, converted to the Church of England, and he said he had a vision from the uh, Archangel Gabriel who told him he was the prophet of Africa, right? And in 1913, he went, along the, uh, he went, to, he went to Ivory Coast to preach. 
speaking to large crowds of thousands and thousands of people, imploring them to turn away from idols and turn to God. His message was uncompromising, and he did not accommodate traditional African religions. Um, but, um, and so his responses, people responded in droves, and over 100,000 it's reported that he, I don't know how he did this, but <laughs> supposedly he baptized 100,000 people in a year. Okay, hit personally. I don't know. It's, that's what he, that's what they report. I don't know. It's whatever. So also there was a man named Simon uh, Kimbungu. Um, he died in uh, 1951 in the Congo region. He was born in a place called Inkamba. Inkamba. He became a Baptist as a young age. He was taught in one of these uh, missionary schools. And in 1918, he began to preach. He, he's another one. He claimed to have had a vision of Jesus. And in 1921, he supposedly healed this ill woman. And so these stories about his ability to heal began to spread, and his followers grew into a church, a huge church. And they started to, he specifically started his own uh, denomination there. And, but it had this increasingly um, charismatic and Pentecostal bent. So um, what starts to happen then at this point is after World War II, the continent is thrown into upheaval again nationally, and it's fueled by a number of complex things. Uh, but the important thing here is, is that at around this time is you have the, the first, uh, yep, the first Pan-African conf conferences start to meet. And so these conferences, and in these conferences, they determine we don't need uh, European government intervention. We can run our nations ourselves, right? So you start to see uh, Ghana in 1957 receives its independence, and then shortly thereafter, you see uh, Nigeria, Gabon, French, and Belgian Congo all begin to receive their independence, 1960, Tanzania in 1961, Kenya in 1963, and you start to see all of these African nations begin to become independent. So what this does is, is eventually, so now you start to see this movement of African-initiated churches that are planted and initiated by Africans themselves, not influences from European denominations. Right, but they, they may still be part, like you still have the Anglicans and these other denominations, but they're ran and led by African bishops now. Right? And this is important because like I said earlier, if you watch the news now, most of the people that's holding the line to Orthodox Christianity, when you see these denominational meetings, are usually African bishops. Right? When they start to introduce um like uh, the, the, the idea of homosexual bishops into, I think it was the Anglican church, it was the African bishops was, was, was not having it at all. So this is what I said earlier where, you know, you start to see this movement from the center, the doctrinal center of Christianity is starting to move ever so to the south, southern, south of the equator. You're starting to see that now, right? So you start to see this big movement of the uh, center of gravity is shifting into, you know, African-led nations. And this is important because the 
impact of African Christianity cannot be understated in the world, okay? In, 18, in 1985, it was estimated that there were at least 12,000 African-initiated denominations with over 33 million members, right? And some of the general characteristics of these are that they serve their communities, they are Zionists because they're influenced by Pentecostalism, they have a distinctively local flavor, yet nevertheless you still, like I say, you got the Anglicans and some of these other denominations there as well. But the success of these, there's also the success of traditional denominations in Africa as well. But the point is, is that what you're starting to see, yes ma'am. Go ahead. Okay, so, so what Ms. Bonnie said was that the, the, the way that um, the missionaries would make inroads into certain societies is that they would go with the gospel, and then they would always have a school, a church, and a hospital. And that's how they would make inroads into certain areas. I'm running out of time. I got to stop. I'm sorry. So what can we do? We need to be praying for the church in Africa, right? We need to be praying for the growth and the health of the pastors of the church there in those different nations. We need to pray that the prosperity gospel would, would die. And one of the other things I think you could do is you could talk to brother, uh, sisters like Sister Bonnie and Baumlock about their experiences of Christianity. And I think that would really be helpful for us to understand exactly some of the things that went on there. And it would be good to see how God has moved in those places. I got to end. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your, mer your mercy and your kindness to us, Lord. God, we pray that you would help us to see your glory and how you have been good and kind to us and to your people all across the globe. Help us to remember, God, that you are God who moves and acts in this world for the glory of your great name and for the good of your people. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.